All right, well, please turn Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we'll be reading verse 8 this morning. And just a reminder that we began this study last week on the issue of, of the head coverings, which will ultimately go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, which is where we'll begin next week. But I did want to lay a foundation for this with last week uh, from 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, and then Colossians 2, 8 in an examination today of what are the tenets of feminism in contrast to what the Bible teaches about the roles of men and women and the way that we ought to conduct ourselves in the church, in the home, and in society. So Colossians chapter 2, it has broader implications than just this one issue, but we're going to apply it specifically to this issue of feminism today, okay? Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and how it does equip and prepare us, Lord, so that we might not be taken captive, Lord, by those philosophies and lies that come from men and, Lord, that ultimately come from demons and the father of all lies, who is the devil himself. Lord, we don't want to be taken captive in these ways, and yet, Lord, we live in this present world where we are surrounded constantly, day in and day out. Lord, we are, there is a barrage of claims being made to us about what is true, about what is right, about what is good. Lord, how we should live. Lord, the things that we should aspire to. And yet, Lord, many of these things, the majority of them, are not founded upon your word, but are rather coming out of a man's own mind. Lord, upon the wisdom of men, which leads to destruction. Lord, we don't want to believe these lies. Lord, we want to believe what your word says in contrast to the lies of men and in contrast to the lies of Satan. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to have clarity, Lord, to have understanding, Lord, to see just how precarious of a situation we live within day in and day out in this present world. Lord, that we might be on guard against the devil and against his lies and, Lord, against men and the many things that they say and that they present to us as true. So, Lord, may we hold to your word and, Lord, may we be able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one through our faith in your holy word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we began this study last week that will culminate and begin next week with an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, which is the passage in the Bible that teaches uh, clearly the practice of head coverings for the women in public worship. Now, the reason we're doing this is to try to give clarity and understanding on this issue to the church so that there might be unity of faith in what we are doing, because obviously, currently, there is a mixture in what we're doing within the church, and it's not something that we've dealt with publicly or openly in one of our teaching times, and so many people have asked me about it, and so we wanted to give a definitive teaching on these things. 
Last week, we began this study by going to the Word of God, the foundation of God's Word. And again, what we said applies not only to this issue, but to any issue, right? Any issue that the Bible addresses, we are bound as Christians to believe what the Bible says, because all Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable, that God is not speaking just to hear Himself talk. But when he speaks, he's doing so for our benefit, right? In order to be a prophet for us, and we are to believe and obey every word of God. Obviously, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is in the Bible, right? It's in the scriptures. It means something. So it is our job to seek to understand as best we can what the passage teaches, right? How we are to understand it and then to incorporate it into our faith and practice. And this is good for us. It's going to benefit and profit us in our Christian life. This week, I want to address why this practice has fallen out of favor in the church today in America, right? Why it is that it seems bizarre, it seems strange, it seems foreign, even to some, they may say it seems cultish, right? If this is so clearly taught in the Bible, then why is no one practicing it, right? Why is it so rare in our own day? And we all know that this would be true. If you went into 99.9% of the churches in America, this is not going to be practiced in the churches. So how can something that's in the Bible be so foreign to our own Christian experience? Especially when we consider that this was a common practice in churches in former years, right? Up until the late 18, early 1900s, what was commonly practiced in the churches broadly was this practice, yet in our day, it is rarely practiced at all. And this is a peculiar work of the devil. The devil turns everything upside down. This is what he wants to do. So that what is good is seen as evil and strange, and then what is evil is seen as good and normative. This is what the devil does. He wants to make the Bible so cloudy, so confusing, to contradict it so that we do the opposite of what God teaches us. Remember Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. It says this. This was happening, and again, Isaiah is writing to Israel, right? To Israelites, to people who have the Bible. And yet, notice what he says Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So here, speaking to Israelites who have the word of God, who have the knowledge of God, who have what they need to understand good and evil, what is happening? The exact opposite, right? What is good is being called evil, and what is evil is being called good. And this is always the result of false teachers, false teachers who infiltrate the church and then who subvert the clear teachings of the word of God. And we know from 1 John that there are many false teachers who have gone out into the world. There are false teachers, false philosophies, false ideologies that become so ingrained in our culture 
that if we are not on our guard, we can quickly begin to adopt the thoughts, the values, the philosophies of this present world, and before long, we become so accustomed to these things that what is contrary to God's word seems normal, it seems natural, because this is what we've always done, and this is what we've always known, and we don't think anything of it. And then when we see conformity to God's word, it seems very odd and bizarre and strange. And this is what the apostle is addressing in Colossians 2.8 for every issue. To see, as he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Right? This is the problem. The church is constantly being assaulted. We are constantly hearing people tell us what we need to believe about the world, about morality, about what is good, about what is right. Are we not receiving a million different people telling us every day what is good and right? And where does most of this wisdom come from? Where does this wisdom originate from? Not from God, but it's coming from men. And ultimately, it's coming from the devil. The church is assaulted by philosophy and empty deceit that is based upon human traditions and based upon the elemental spirits of this world and not based upon the word of God. And when these ideas are presented to us and the church doesn't resist it, the church doesn't have a good founding on the word of God. The church doesn't push back, but instead begins to compromise here and there, begins to embrace these philosophies or aspects of these philosophies that are from the world and are rooted in human traditions. Then over time, the church begins to drift away from the clear teachings of the Bible, that we are led away from sincere, pure devotion to Christ. And this is how things that are biblical, whether those be doctrines, practices, obedience, whatever it is, they fall out of favor within the church. The godless culture begins to subvert the truth of God's word, and if the church is not on guard, then the church will begin to adopt and embrace these philosophies that are based upon human tradition. And look at our present culture. We all recognize that Western culture or American culture has been shifting Right, there has been a dramatic shift right, in the last 100 years from at the very least, right, though I, I would never say that everyone in America or everyone in the West was a true Christian. It's always been that there's a minority of true Christians, but at the very least, the culture was founding on some understanding, whether that be a true understanding, a nominal understanding, but there was at least some understanding of Christian truth of Christian understanding of the world, of God and his existence, right? Of Christian morality. And yet, Western culture and American culture has shifted from a foundation that is at least nominally Christian to being completely secular, atheistic, and based upon evolution and things that reject Christianity, Christian truth, and Christian morality, from the existence of God, to the origins of the universe, to the understanding of good and evil, the roles of men and women, the definition of marriage, and now even whether or not there are men and women 
All of these things are being questioned in our own day. Things that were not questioned 100 years ago, 200, 300, 4, 5, for many, many years, these things were not even questioned at all. Because people had a basic understanding when they looked at the world, they were in some part looking at it through a guise or through a prism of Christian truth and Christian understanding. But that's not the case anymore. Now it is secularism. It is atheism. It is godlessness. This is what is the underlying foundation upon which the culture is proceeding in our own day. To the point that we have people questioning the very definition of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. We have a person who has just been confirmed and who will be serving on the Supreme Court, the highest court in our land, as a judge who, when asked to define what is a man and what is a woman, stated that she's not a biologist. So it's not her place to define what is a man and what is a woman. Do we not have biological males? with full male anatomies, competing, swimming, dominating, biological females who have full female anatomy. Isn't this happening? Haven't we all seen this in our own day? Men competing against women in sports and not in the insane asylums, right? We're not talking about those in some nut house that are doing this, but where is this taking place? Institutions that are regarded by many as the very pinnacle of enlightened thinking. Sophistication, sophisticated Ivy League colleges where the graduates will go on and be some of the most influential people in the world. And yet they have embraced, they are teaching ideas that 50 years ago would have ended them in the insane asylum. That's where they would have put them. They would have locked them up, put them in a straitjacket, lock them into the nut house, because how could anyone say these things? And yet now they're being promoted. They're being elevated. They receive tenure in these universities, in these institutions. The insane asylum is the public square. This is the world in which we find ourselves. This is where we have arrived today in America regarding the definition of men and women regarding the distinctions between men and women, regarding the roles of men and women, regarding the definition and the institution of marriage. And this shift that has taken place, did it happen overnight? Or has it been happening over many, many years? It has been happening over the course of many years. Over the last hundred years, this shift has been taking place in America. From the late 18 to the early 1900s, these things began to find their way in to the institutions through cultural rotting, and then they have eroded these things to the point that we arrive at today where we don't even know if there are men or women, and men are competing against women. And this is the result of, first, Darwinism, and then secondly, feminism. Darwinism, the understanding of the origin of the universe that comes from Darwin, has social implications. And one of the social implications from Darwinism is feminism. They go hand in hand. And isn't Darwinism or evolutionary theory, which is a lie from the devil, isn't this, doesn't everyone believe this today? Isn't this the common belief? in the colleges, in the institutions, 
right, in the places of prestige today. Everyone believes this. And one of the social implications of Darwinism is radical feminism. And many of the institutions have been promoting feminism for many, many years. And we have been participating in these institutions for many years. And the church has been engrossed in these ideologies for many years, whether we know it or not, right? The government school system, which nearly all of us attended, right? I attended, many of you attended as well. Is the government school system committed to teaching biblical roles of men and women? Absolutely not. But what are they teaching? They're peddling feminism. They're peddling feminism to the boys, but especially to the girls. What about the universities that many of us attended, like myself, at the University of Oklahoma? Radical promoters of feminism. In nearly every department, these things are found. Are they teaching biblical, God-honoring roles of men and women in the universities? Of course not. They're teaching the exact opposite of these things. What about the media that we consume? The newspapers, the books, the magazines, the movies, the commercials, right? Even cartoons for kids, right? What are they promoting, right? What is the underlying assumption that is driving so much of what they are putting out? Feminism and all these other things as well, right? Gone are the days where the white knight comes to rescue the damsel in distress because now the damsel doesn't need help from a man. She can do it herself. We need strong, independent female leads in the movies, in the TV shows, in the cartoons for the children so that the women and the girls will know you don't need a man. You can do it all on your own. Are these mediums not promoting unbiblical roles for men and women? They're promoting feminism. The men are all stupid idiots and the women can do everything a man can do, but only better. And the church, the Christians, have been attending these schools, sending their children to these universities, consuming media with no filter, where feminism has been taught both explicitly and implicitly. Right? Whether they're saying it overtly or not, it doesn't matter. It is implicit in everything you see with little to no pushback. Feminism is assumed to be true. It is presented to us as truth without any counter-argument at all. The women need to be liberated from men. Women don't need men. Marriage is a prison. The home is a place of slavery. Children are optional. Submission is oppression. And so women have been told to break away. Break away, chart your own path, speak your mind, take the lead, don't be under the thumb of your husband. And the men, right, because it goes both ways. The men have been thoroughly emasculated. Keep quiet, shut up, be passive, right? The ideal man today is a soy boy, a soy boy who drinks soy lattes from Starbucks, right, who's limp-wristed, who's effeminate, this is the ideal man that is being promoted today. Not rugged masculinity like years past, but these kinds of emotional, they're like women, but in a man's body, right? That's the ideal man to, for the feminist today. This is what is happening. 
And any man who seeks to exercise biblical authority over his wife and children is a tyrant. He's the devil incarnate. So the women are all geniuses. They have perfect discernment. They can do anything a man can do, but only better. They're all bastions of virtue and wisdom. And the men are stupid, dopes, blundering buffoons who can't do anything right. The women are elevated and the men are being put down. And this comes not just from the world, right? Not just from the world. This also comes from the flesh, from our own wicked flesh that remains within us, right? Even as believers, we still have to fight against the flesh that is waging war against the spirit, right? So in us, this is going to be a constant battle. It's not just a battle that's coming from outside. It is certainly outside, but it is also a battle that is on the inside as well in both men and women. We have to fight against this evil. The men are tempted to be passive, right? To just do whatever it takes to get along, keep your wife ham- uh, keep the wife happy, keep harmony in the home, no matter what it takes. The men are distracted and they're consumed with sports, with entertainment, and they're not taking their responsibilities as men seriously to teach the word of God to their wife and to their children and to lead their family in the Bible the way that they should. They're completely consumed with all of these other things. Why do you think that they put football on Sundays? Is it not to distract the men so that the men are consumed with sports instead of consumed with the word of God, instead of leading their families? This is what is happening. And then the women, the women, in our women even as well, will have to fight against this because it's coming from the flesh. The men have to fight. We have to fight against passivity. And the women have to fight against domineering taking charge, thinking that you are so smart and so tough, you can do everything on your own without any input from your husband. This thinking has infiltrated not only the society, but it has also infiltrated the church. The churches have embraced feminism as seen in the way that the men behave and the way that the women behave in the churches and in the Christian homes. And I'm not just talking about liberal denominations. Certainly they've embraced it, where the women are becoming pastors, deacons, they're doing everything. There's no distinction in terms of positions in the church. But even in so-called evangelical churches, the churches that claim to believe the Bible, churches that in theory say that they promote biblical roles for men and women, but who practically, in the way that they are operated, in the way that they are running, what do they believe? It's feminism. They support it in a practical way. Because in most churches, in most Baptist churches, in most Pentecostal churches, in most Presbyterian churches, in most Bible churches, who's running the show? It's not the men, right? The men are at home watching football. It's the women who are running the show. And many of us would say that this has been our experience. This is what we have seen. This is what I saw growing up in a small Oklahoma town, not not in New York, not in Boston, not in San Francisco, not in any of those places, in small rural Oklahoma, conservative Oklahoma, Bible Belt Oklahoma, this was the case at the church that I grew up in. The women were running the show. Domineering women and weak-willed passive men. I remember in my early days, even here at the church, 
sitting in my office, having two women berate me while their husbands sat in the car. The husbands were in the car, and the women were in there letting me have it, telling me all the problems with the church. Why were they there and not their husbands? The husbands are passive, and the women are the ones taking charge. This is everywhere. It's everywhere we look. Feminism, this ideology, this human philosophy is so ingrained in our society that we can adhere to its principles without even realizing it, right? It can be so a part of us that we don't even see it anymore, right? This is the way it happens. The culture embraces some new demonic philosophy. It works its way into every aspect of the culture, into the various institutions. The church, because the church doesn't want to be considered out of touch, outdated, backwards, obscure, right? If, if, we, if we don't go along with this, the New York Times, they're going to make fun of us, right? And that's uh, such an enlightened place, though it's not really. Those people are a bunch of deadbeats, but this is what people think. We don't want to be left behind, and we don't want the New York Times making fun of us. So we need to compromise. We need to find ways to make Christianity not look so backwards, not look so, so weird and obscure, And so what does the church do? They find ways to start compromising here and here with this new demonic philosophy. Eventually, you'll have some Christian theologians, some Christian pastors who will write a book showing how this new philosophy actually isn't contrary to Christianity. Actually, you can support it with the Bible. They'll misinterpret the Bible and show that this new philosophy can be accommodated with Christianity. And then the church begins to drift more and more and more over time so that this new demonic philosophy becomes completely ingrained in the thinking and the practice of the church. And then within a generation or two, what is biblical is bizarre. And what is unbiblical is common in what is practiced. This happens in many ways. Many examples. How about young earth creationism? Young earth creationism. This was the dominant position in the church for thousands of years. And yet now, if you go to a seminary and go to the Old Testament department, you will, it, it is almost impossible to find an Old Testament scholar who holds to young earth creationism. They're all evolutionists. In one way or another, they have accommodated the Bible, which is impossible, but they've accommodated the Bible in the Old Testament to evolution. And what brought brought about that change? Did that change come as a result of serious study of the Bible? No. What happened? This is what the culture did. The culture, all the institutions, all the secular universities, they all became evolutionists, And if we don't embrace evolution, everyone's going to think us Christians are a bunch of Neanderthals, right? We're a bunch of rednecks. We're a bunch of of hicks from the sticks, and they're all going to make fun of us. So we've got to find a way to accommodate evolution to Christianity. Now we can teach it, and now we're not backwards, and we're not obscure. What about the doctrines of predestination and election? At least in the Baptist churches, these were universally believed up until the 1800s, but now they're the minority position. They were things that were completely foreign to what we were being taught and what I was raised in in a Southern Baptist church. What about abortion, baby murder? 
Isn't this also being more and more embraced in our own day, even in the churches? What about the sin of sodomy? Isn't it being more and more embraced? The culture has shifted on this issue, and now the churches are following the culture. And this is the same as the practice of wearing head coverings and the underlying issue, which is the more significant issue, which is the roles of men and women, wives submitting to their husbands. The common attitude and the common practice in the church for many, many years, until the 1900s, the churches were nearly universally practicing the wearing of head coverings. And if you read old commentaries on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they're just assuming that this is what people are doing. It's not even a controversial topic for them because this is what was commonly practiced. But now it is a point of great contention and it is extremely controversial because it is so uncommon. And why is it so uncommon today? Because of feminism. Feminism. Right? The, the culture influencing the church instead of the other way. The church should influence the culture. The culture should not influence the church. And when the culture goes in one direction that is contrary to Scripture, then we have to resist them. We have to oppose them. We have to stand firm on the Word of God, even if we are called outdated, traditional, out of touch, and backwards. And people will say, well, no one will come to your church if you do this because modern women won't tolerate it. Well, that's okay. Christian women will if it's in the Bible because my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And when you look at the miserable state of the churches today, should we be surprised that something that is biblical is not believed or practiced? Why would that be surprising at all? So if we're promoting something that is uncommon, that is different, then what's happening in the culture and what's happening in the churches, that's not a reason to reject it. More than likely, it's a reason to do it, right? Because of what has happened in our own day. Faithfulness to God is uncommon today, even in the churches. And all that should matter to us is, what does the Bible say? If it's in the Bible, then let's do it, right? Let's do it. What is in the Bible? What does the Scripture teach? 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan seeks to deceive from the very, very beginning. He is a liar, the father of all lies. Whatever philosophy, whatever ideology we find in this present world, that contradicts the Bible. If it contradicts God, we know that that philosophy comes from who? Comes from the devil. And this is why I contend that feminism is nothing more than Satanism. Feminism is Satanism. This is the way that we have to look at it. It's not harmless. It hasn't done some good. It's done no good. It is an evil it's from the pit of hell, and it will not lead to our good or the good of our women or our girls or the good of our homes and families. It will lead to death, misery, destruction, and ultimately, it will lead to the lake of fire if we do not repent of it. We cannot compromise and hold hands with the world, with the flesh, and with the devil. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is is enmity with God. 
Whoever to wish, wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James chapter 4, verse 4. Okay, that was a long introduction. Now, what ways, in what ways, you know, you're probably thinking, is this guy ever going to get to the Bible? We're going to now. Okay, in what ways is feminism in opposition to God? That's the real key, that's the real key right? Because if we can determine that this philosophy is contradictory to what the Bible teaches for men and women and marriage and in the way that God created the world, then we can clearly see that it's satanic. And anything that came about because of it should be rejected, should be rejected. So what is the biblical proof? In what ways is feminism in opposition to God? First, God is a God of authority, and God is a God of order. The created order, including human relationships, are established by God upon the order of God and are manifested in roles of authority and submission. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Notice verse 33. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Then also, verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. Here, the apostle is giving instructions to the church. This is in the section that our passage will be in as well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But he's given instructions to the church on how things ought to operate in an orderly and in a decent way, in the way that the men and women relate to one another. Because God is opposed to confusion. He hates disorder. He hates strife. God is a God of order. He is a God of peace. And when God does something, he does it decently, and he does it in a proper and in an orderly fashion. There is no confusion with God. So should we be surprised then that in God's creation, in the created order, God has himself established various institutions of authority in order to bring order into this present world. And in human relationships, there must be institutions, there must be some proper order, otherwise it's going to be complete chaos, confusion, and strife. So in human relationships, whether in the home, in the church, in the workplace, in society, there has to be authority. There has to be some structure. Someone has to have the final say on things, otherwise it's going to be chaos and disorder. What about in the military? What if there were no officers? What if there was no commanding officer and everyone was on an equal level playing field? How could you get anything done? So we know this implicitly. We know this naturally that there has to be order. There has to be authority. Otherwise, it's just going to be utter chaos and everyone's going to do what's good and right and what they think is best. The ultimate authority of all things is God. And God has established various institutions in this world that are based upon his authority. So authority is not evil. God is himself an authoritarian because he has all authority and he possesses it and he commands and tells us what it is that we ought to do. And when men are exercising proper authority in the world in submission to the authority of God, it's not an evil. 
it is good. It is good. It brings about order. It brings about peace. It brings about righteousness. It is good for everyone. So God is a God of order. What about Satan? Well, Satan, on the other hand, he despises all authority. He hates God. He hates the authority of God. He hates the word of God. He hates the institutions of authority that God has established in the world, and he seeks to undermine these things. Feminism, at its very core, and I'm not misrepresenting it, at its very core, it is anti-authoritarian. It attacks the proper order and authority established by God in the home and in society. And who is against authority? Who loves confusion? Who loves chaos? Who despises authority? The devil. He is the one who despises authority. Jude verse 6. Jude verse 6. Here, speaking of the evil fallen angels, notice what it says of them. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness under the judgment of the great day. The fallen angels did not stay within their own position of authority. What role God gave to them was not enough. They wanted something greater. They wanted something more. They were not content to stay within the realm of authority God had allotted to them. And so what did they do? They rebelled against God. This is what Satan did in the fallen angels, rebelled against the authority of God. So who hates authority? Well, here, fallen angels. They don't stay within their own position that God has allotted to them. And when we do that, whether men or women do not stay within their own position of authority, then we are living like a demon, right? This is the way they live. 2 Peter chapter 4. 2 Peter chapter 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a world upon, uh, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There, God is keeping the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially which unrighteous people? Well, there, he says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and those who despise authority. Those who despise authority 
according to the apostle, are unrighteous. Unrighteous people. Well, isn't this what feminism is teaching? Teaching women to despise their husbands, to despise men, to despise the institution of marriage that God has established for the good of society and for the proper order of this present world. So to despise marriage is demonic, it is evil, and to despise the husband is demonic and evil. Next, God created mankind as both male and female, and God is the one who established that the male would have authority over the female. Right? This did not come from men. This came from God. God is the one who established this. So in the marriage, in the home, in society, the husband, father is the ultimate human authority, right? the ultimate human authority, because his authority must be subjugated to the authority of God. Right? But in terms of roles, in terms of positions of authority, God has granted that the husband would have a superior position and that the wife would have an inferior position in the home in terms of their roles and in terms of the way they relate to one another. The man has headship authority over the wife. Is that an evil thing? No, because who, who is the one who founded it? God did. And if God founds it, then it is righteous. And God founded this not after the fall. He did this before the fall. So in a perfect world that was declared very good by God, this is the way society was ordered. The man with headship and the woman in submission to the husband. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 1 Timothy 2.8 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, why? Why is this the case? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Right? That goes back to creation, right? Adam was formed first, then Eve. So it's obvious if he was formed first and she was made for him, that he has authority over her. That's the argument he's making. He was formed first, not Eve. And then secondly, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's Genesis chapter 3. In terms of the fall, both of them sinned, but who was the one that was deceived by the serpent? It was the woman. And that's why he doesn't permit the women to have authority and to teach the men because they are the ones that are more susceptible to false doctrine and to false teaching. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 11, 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, 
The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband. And head there means authority. The one in authority over the man is Christ, and the one in authority over the wife, again, in terms of roles, is the husband, and then the father is over Christ. Then also, verse 8, verse 8. For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Right? The man wasn't made out of the woman. The woman was made out of the man. And the man wasn't made for the woman. She was made for him. He came first, and then she came second. And this was done intentionally by God to teach and to show naturally in the created order right, that the man, the male, has headship over the wife and that she is to be submissive to him. And that's not evil. That's good. It's pleasing. It's righteous in the sight of God. Also, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Right? Just as the church submits to Christ in everything, right? and Christ always exercises his authority over the church in what is good and righteous. So wives should submit in everything to their husbands, everything that is good and righteous. Right? This is what they should do. They should submit under the authority of the husband. So there, again, these passages are unmistakable. There's no other way to interpret them unless you are a misinterpreter, a distorter of the Bible. And if you read even liberal commentators, actually there's feminist commentators the women's Bible commentary, they will just flat out say the Apostle Paul was misogynistic, that the Apostle Paul hated women, that the Apostle Paul is inarticulate, he's unclear, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So they know what he's saying, they just are so bold and brazen as to say the Apostle Paul doesn't have any authority over us, we can do whatever we want. Because it's so clear, it is undeniable. The Bible teaches that the husband has headship, he has authority over the wife, this is from God, it's not evil, it is good, it is proper, and ultimately it goes back to creation before sin entered into the world. The world. The roles of men and women are based upon creation, right? Based upon what took place in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, right? Well, what has happened with evolution? What does evolution attack? What does it undermine? Where does it go back to? Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So if you take away Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with evolution, you now have no basis for there to be roles between men and women. How do we even know that men came first in terms of the evolutionary process? How, we, we can't say those things. And all of that is a myth, so you have no basis. And with evolution, right, with God, with creationism, the world exists because of the order of God, because of the creation of God. God is a God of order, 
and he established the world based upon order. But in terms of evolution, how does the world come about? Not through order, but through chaos, through chance. So if there is no order in creation, but it's chaos, then what are you going to have in society? It's going to be chaos. You see how it's connected to that? It always goes back to these things, and this is why it is so evil. Again, feminism is social Darwinism, social evolution in society. So the Bible teaches male headship. Feminism, on the other hand, rejects the headship and authority of man over the woman, and this is clearly contrary to the word of God. They reject the authority of God. This is rebellion against God. And as it says in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or as the sin of divination. And as we read earlier from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, it is the unrighteous who despise proper authorities. They hate authority. Feminists despise the authority of men over women. They hate it. They want to undermine it because they are daughters of the devil. This is what they are in contrast to righteous women who quietly and gladly, joyfully submit to their husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, could you imagine righteous Sarah marching in one of these feminist uh, you know, uh, protests, the, the days that they have, where they're all wearing their vile, filthy hats, cursing and saying all sorts of vile, filthy things? Would the righteous women of the Bible have ever participated in these kind of nefarious activities? It's impossible. No way that they would ever do that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. There, the imperishable beauty of a righteous woman in the sight of God and in the sight of the righteous is seen in a gentle, quiet spirit, not a loud mouth. Not someone who's going to let my opinion be known to everyone. Everyone's going to know what's on my mind. No, that's not the way that they were. They had a gentle and a quiet spirit. Not that they never talked. Of course they did. But the way they conducted themselves was in a modest and a sober way, which in God's sight, he says, is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Next, point three. God declares marriage to be good. The Bible clearly teaches that marriage as an institution was created by God and that the expectation in this life is that men and women, nearly all of them, with very few exceptions, will be married will have children, and will raise a family, and that this is good for both men and women. 
men need women and women need men, right? We all need one another. This is why God created the woman in the first place because it was not good for the man to be alone. Genesis chapter two. And just as it's not good for man to be alone, he needs a helper. How is Adam going to subdue the earth? How is he going to be fruitful and multiply? Without a wife. He can't do it. It's impossible. He cannot fulfill the mandate given to him by God without a wife. But also, how can the wife fulfill what God has called her to do without a husband? It can't happen, right? It cannot happen. It's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the woman to be alone. The man needs a woman, and the woman needs a man, right? Not another man, and the woman doesn't need another woman. They don't need a tree. They don't need an android. They don't need a Martian, an alien. They don't need any of those things. Man with a woman, woman with a man. Okay, chapter 2, Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. They're very clear, right? This is not good. It's not good. It's not right for the man to be alone. He needs a helper, right? Notice that, a helper fit for him. Not an independent person, not someone who's going to work against him, not someone working independently from him. If she's helping him, then what is she doing? She's working alongside of him. She's coming and helping him fulfill what God has called him to do, which assumes that it's under his authority. God gave him the mandate, then he teaches the wife, and she comes along and helps him. Verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God intentionally brings all the animals before Adam to show him that in all of creation, there is not another being suitable to be a helper for Adam, to show him his need. Then God provides the solution. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Adam's response to the creation of his wife, Eve, was not, oh, this is, this is going to be problematic. This could really hamper my freedom and what I want to do in life. It wasn't that at all. He recognized and understood this is good for me. This is finally, at last, there is someone here suitable for me. Right? And what he's saying is not just true for him. It's not just that men need women, but they also it would be true for her. This would be her sentiment as well, that yes, in the man, I have what I need to live the life God has called me to live. Neither the man nor the woman intended to live alone. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 18, 22. How about Proverbs 31, 10? An excellent wife, who can find? 
She is far more precious than jewels. So the Bible praises, it lifts up, it elevates the institution of marriage as good for both men and women. Feminists, on the other hand, teach that marriage is unnecessary, especially for women. It is a burden. It is contrary to the good and happiness of a woman, that the woman does not need a man. Right? A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. This is what one feminist says. Well, any philosophy, any ideology, any movement that downplays the importance and good of marriage, where does it come from? It has to come from the devil. It is a doctrine that comes from demons, and we must reject it. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There, these teachings of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons that come through insincere liars whose conscience are seared. So these are not good people. These aren't swell chaps. These are dangerous people who are coming into the church and the two things that they're teaching, they're forbidding marriage and they're requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. And he says, everything created by God is good. Well, who created marriage? God. It's good. It's not to be rejected, but it is to be received with thanksgiving. The Bible teaches that the married state is a blessed state for both men and women. And particularly for a woman, to be unmarried is considered a reproach, a shame in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 4. Notice the attitude of these women. Isaiah chapter 4. This is an unmarried state that is a result of judgment and a lack of men. And notice how desperate the women are to get married. But today, the unmarried state is a result of ideology. It's a, a, the result of a choice that many women are saying, I don't want to get married because I want to, to live my life. I want to have my career and do whatever I want to do. Isaiah 4 verse 1, And seven women shall take a hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Seven women grabbing a hold of one man and saying, we'll provide our own food and our own clothing. Who usually provides the food and clothing? Usually that's the man's responsibility to be the provider. These women are saying, we'll provide our own food and clothing. You don't have to provide anything for us. Just let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach from us. And we'll share the bed with six other women. We're willing to do that because we want to be married. This is the result of the judgment of God. Is that the attitude people have today toward marriage? No, not at all. Next, what about children? What about children? 
God declares that children are a blessing from the Lord and that bearing and raising godly children is specifically good for the woman in taking away the shame that came upon the female sex because of the fall. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. 13 through 15. 1 Timothy 2, 13 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. They, the woman, will be saved, he says, through childbearing. Not meaning that just having a child guarantees that you're going to go to heaven. But he's talking about the manifestation of her salvation is going to be seen in the rearing the, uh, and raising of godly offspring. And this will be the honor, the dignity of the woman. It will take away the sting of the shame that came upon her. The shame is that she was deceived. She was the one that was deceived. She was the one targeted by the serpent. And she is the one that deceived and then led her husband to commit this sin as well. But she will be redeemed in that her, that her uh, womanhood will be redeemed by having children and raising godly children in the fear of the Lord. Because in the home, who is the one that has the most influence over the children? Who's with them all the time? It's the woman. It's the woman who is teaching them in a day in and day out the affairs of life. Because the men, especially in their, when they're young, when they're little, the men are at work and the women are the ones teaching them the fundamentals, not only of life and language, how to talk, how to walk, but the fundamentals of the Bible, of Christian religion, of true doctrine. Isn't that the case with Timothy? Who taught him the sacred writings? His mother and his grandmother. They're the ones who taught him those things. So the deception brought shame upon the woman, but the rearing of godly children will bring glory and honor upon her. 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. You see why they, feminists hate the Apostle Paul. They detest him utterly because all of these passages are where? The Apostle Paul. Most of the passages we've been reading are the Apostle Paul. They hate Paul so much. 1 Timothy 5, and let's see, verse 9. says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up her children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the, deflict, the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan, if any Believing woman has relatives who are widows. Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that they may care for those who are truly widows. So there, the younger widows, he wants them to get married, have children, and manage their households. 
and not be idle and not be going from house to house, being busybodies, stirring up strife and contention in the church and in the community. And if they have the children, then they're going to be busy at home, right? Taking care of them and doing the things that they need to do because children are the blessing from the Lord. So as it says in Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Psalm 128, verse 3, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Marriage and children are evidences of the blessing of God upon both a man and a woman. Children. Children are good, a blessing. Consider the attitude as well of righteous women like Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, Hannah, Elizabeth, all who were barren, but when God gave those women conception, did they see it as a burden? No. Even though some of them were very old, and people would say, oh, this kid's going to be messed up. He's got old parents, you know. He's going to have psychological problems because his parents are 80 or 90 years old. That wasn't the way they looked at it. They looked at it as God taking away their reproach, taking away their shame. Though it wasn't their fault that they were barren, but God took it away and they rejoiced in that day. In contrast, the attitude of feminist, the attitude of feminism teaches that children and motherhood are optional, If you want to have children, they say, okay, that's fine, but it's not necessary, and it's certainly not worth giving up your career or your ideals or what it is that you want to do. This is part and parcel of everything that has taken place, right? The sexual revolution that came about in America is the result of feminism. It's my body, and I can do whatever I want to do with it. I can fornicate with as many men as I want, outside of marriage and without the prospect of having children because I can take birth control that will keep me from getting pregnant or if I do get pregnant, then I can just go down to the abortion clinic and have my baby murdered. And this is what they're doing. Downplaying, minimizing the importance of having children and even if they do have children, they don't find their fulfillment in motherhood. They don't find their fulfillment, their identity in raising godly offspring, right? This is contrary to the attitude of the righteous women in the Bible, who their joy was found in motherhood, right? In being mothers and raising children. Next, the Bible teaches that the home is the domain of the wife and mother, that it is good for a wife and a mother to focus on the home, to have as her objective in life the raising of children, the keeping of the house, so that the home is a place of order and happiness. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Titus 2, 3. It says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God 
may not be reviled. And how are the older women going to teach this if they have not themselves practiced it? So that's what they practiced when they were young. Now they're going to teach the younger women how to be godly women, which includes loving your husband and children and working at home. Working at home, focusing there on the house. That's as we just read earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, when he said, I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their own households and give the adversary no occasion to slander. Right? What about Proverbs chapter 31, where it relays to us the excellent wife, right? the ideal wife, the godly and the righteous wife? Right? Where is her focus? Right? What is she committed to? Is she out and about having her own career, doing her own thing, independent of her husband and without her children? No, she's not doing those things at all. Her focus is on the home. Proverbs 31, verse 10. Notice, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. And with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her land to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Here the excellent wife, far more precious than jewels. She spends her day working hard in the home for the sake of her husband and for the sake of her children and even for the sake of strangers, for the poor and for the needy. She's not idle. She's not sitting around watching soap operas. She's not sitting around uh, messing around on her phone doing this and that all day long. She's not doing those things. She's working, working hard for the sake of her family. And is that a burden for her to have to devote her life and her time and her talents and her attention to her family? No, she's happy to do so to make sure the home is well-ordered and run in a proper fashion that is beneficial to the inhabitants. The godly woman serves in the home for the sake of her family and the sake of others. Now, this in contrast to feminism. Feminism that teaches women to abandon the home, to leave the home, forsake the home, work outside the home, have your own career, 
right, that you're not going to be fulfilled if you're just at home with the children. They teach that if a woman is a homemaker, she's wasting all of her gifts, all of her talents, all of her intellect, squandering it there in the home. Right? Where in our perverse culture are the young girls, are the young women being taught that being a wife and a mother, being a housewife, being a homemaker, right? those are dirty words today. To call someone a housewife, right? oh, that's an evil thing to say. This would be mocked and ridiculed in our culture. Right? A young girl who desires to be at home raising her children is considered to be insane today. You've got you to shoot for something higher than this. Yet according to many of these passages, according to 1 Timothy 5.15, young widows who refuse to marry, who refuse to have children, who refuse to manage their households, but instead are idle and busybodies and gossips, are said by the apostle to have strayed after Satan. Right? Women who reject marriage, children, the managing of the household, are said by the apostle to have strayed after Satan. So in, all, in these areas, authority, order, male headship, marriage, children, the home, the ideals promoted by feminism are in direct contradiction to the word of God. Feminists ultimately hate God. They hate his authority because they are like their father who is the devil. And they hate anything in this life that would bind them under the authority of God. This is why feminists detest men, they detest marriage, they detest children and keeping house. Because whatever God says they should do, this is what they hate, for ultimately they are in rebellion against God. So the freedom, the liberation that feminists have secured for the modern woman is not freedom at all. Right? It is not true liberation, but in reality it is what? It is slavery. They have enslaved women. The freedom that is being taught and being promoted for women today is the freedom that Adam and Eve experienced in Genesis chapter 3. Freedom to sin. Freedom that leads to death and that leads to misery. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. This is what's happening. It sounds so good. right? It sounds so wonderful. right? Who could be against these things? But whenever it's contrary to the word of God... It, it does not deliver what it promises. 2 Peter 2.17 These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. From them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This is the freedom that the modern woman has experienced. They promise them freedom, but they are slaves of corruption. In the name of freedom, they enslave women. They enslave them to sin, to death, and ultimately to the lake of fire. In the name of women, feminists destroy women. Isn't that what we see? Are not these radical feminists 
some of the most loathsome, detestable, foul-mouthed creatures to walk the face of the earth. If you watch the videos of them protesting, marching here and there, doing this and that, they have no shame. They have no dignity. They have no modesty about them. Right? Women, which typically of the two sexes, men and women, women are more delicate. The women are more tender. The women are more refined. Right? Women typically desire to carry themselves in a more respectful and dignified manner in contrast to men. They're not belching. They're not breaking wind. They're not doing those kinds of things. That's what men do. But not the women. But not among feminists. Feminist, right? Feminism, it turns women into disgusting, vile monsters who lack every virtue that the Bible says makes a woman beautiful. A gentle, quiet spirit. Because there's nothing gentle and nothing quiet about these wild beasts. But on the contrary, they are hideous both on the inside and the out. And typically, the, most, the more radical the feminist, the uglier the person. The uglier they are. Which again, not everyone has the same natural beauty, but they go out of their way to be ugly. They go out of their way to be unkept and to present themselves in an ugly way. Like a creature that just crawled out of the swamp. And then when they open their mouths, they're filled with anger, with rage, with hatred, with obscenities. They're foul-mouthed. They can make a sailor blush in some of the things that they say in their obscenities. And they boast about how many abortions that they've had, how many babies that they've murdered. Right? They say, I'm a nasty woman. Right? I've been with this many men. I've done all of these things about all the men that they fornicated with and all the things that they shouldn't boast about. They should be ashamed of these things, yet they wear them as if they are a badge of honor. This is the liberated woman. This is the so-called enlightened woman. This is the modern American woman with her $100,000 in debt and her gender studies degree marching around spewing blasphemies, spewing obscenities out here and there. And they tell us that this woman is free. And in contrast to Christian women who are slaves, who are in oppression. But this is no freedom. This is bondage. And they are miserable people. They are miserable people. They're all on drugs. They're on drugs. They're on psychotropic drugs. They're on uh, illegal drugs because they're so miserable because of the way that they are living. Filled with anger, hatred, regret, guilt. They have no peace. They live a miserable life. They'll die a miserable death. And then they'll have a miserable eternity in the lake of fire. Because they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. In contrast to a godly woman who, according to the feminist, is a slave. She's oppressed. She spends her day serving her husband and her children but not according to God. According to the Lord, the godly wife who humbly, quietly submits to her husband with a gentle and quiet spirit, she raises her family who spends her days working hard in the home. She is not a slave. In reality, she is free. For obedience to God always leads to freedom. True freedom is always found in obedience to God. Not the freedom of the world, not the freedom of the flesh, not the freedom of the devil, but true freedom is found in obedience to God. 
So the submissive wife, she is the free one. And the so-called liberated woman, she is the one who is a slave. John chapter 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we read earlier, verses 5 and 6, when it talks about Sarah, and it says that you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. If we do good, and in this case, the context is submitting the wives submitting to the husband, then they have nothing to fear because they're doing the will of God. And who's going to rise up and call them blessed at the end of their life? Their husband, their children. And then who's going to call them blessed on the day of judgment? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will be the one who commends them, who honors them. So let us reject then what is coming from the world. We have to fight against feminism, both in men and in women. Men, you cannot be passive. You cannot be preoccupied with the things of this world, with money, with entertainment, with sports, whatever it is, hobbies. You cannot be preoccupied with those things to the detriment of leading your wife and your children in the things of God. And the women need to not domineer over the men. They don't need to be assertive over their husband. Isn't that what got us into this predicament in the first place? Feminism isn't new. This goes back to Genesis, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam being passive and Eve acting independently of her husband, thinking that she was smart enough and tough enough and she didn't need the help of her husband. And we have the world telling us that this is good. We have the flesh telling us that this is good. We have Satan tempting us that this is good. And then sadly, it is repeated over and over and over and over again in the church, in society, and in the home. So that God would establish for the public assembly in the church a symbol to serve as a reminder of the need for men to be courageous and act like men and lead in their home and lead in the church to know the word of God and to serve as a symbol for the women to be a reminder to them of their own weakness and the need for them to submit to their husbands and not try to take control should not be surprising to us that God would establish a symbol to teach these things to us each and every week. And this is why it can be so beneficial for us especially in our day, where feminism is dominating the home, the church, and the culture. So next week, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and ultimately, the issue is, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach? So we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, and begin an exposition of that passage in, in hopes that it will give clarity and understanding so that we all know what the will of God is and what it is that God expects of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that, Lord, you have given us your word to equip us, Lord, for everything that we need, for life, for godliness, Lord, so that we might be competent and complete, Lord, for every good work. Lord, we have so many forces that are working against us, Lord, both without and within. The world, Lord, the devil, Lord, that are tempting us to reject your word, Lord, to believe their lies, 
to do those things that are contrary to your will. Lord, we have the flesh within still pulling us, Lord, away from what is good and right. And Lord, we know that this goes back, Lord, all the way to Genesis chapter 3. Lord, the roles of men and women, the desire for men to be weak and to be passive, Lord, to not speak up and not do what they're called to do. Lord, the desire for women to subvert the role of their husbands. Lord, to think that they are wiser and stronger and that they have everything that they need in themselves and that they don't need the help of their husband. Lord, it goes all the way back to the beginning. And this sin has been a plague upon this world and upon the church and the home for many, many generations. Lord, for many years. And Lord, we see all of the devastation that is a result of these things. So Lord, we want to do what is right in your sight. Lord, we want to be different. We don't want to be like the world. But rather, we want to have the mind of Christ. And we want to live according to your will. And Lord, we know that you are a God of order and that you have established, Lord, order and authority in this world and that in the home, the husband is to have authority and the wife is to live in submission under the authority of her husband. Lord, we know that in our present world, this is a very strange, Lord, bizarre, Lord, even a detestable teaching. Everything, every, everyone hates this, Lord. They are against it. Lord, they are telling us that this is evil and that it will not lead to good. And yet, Lord, you are telling us that it is righteous and that this will lead to our good and it will be a benefit to many, many others as well. So, Lord, we don't want to live according to the world, but we want to live according to your word. And so, Father, we pray that we would overcome whatever apprehensions we might have. Lord, that you would give to the men courage, boldness. Lord, that we would not be preoccupied with this present world, with pleasures, Lord, with entertainment, with hobbies, but rather we would be preoccupied with your word. Lord, in knowing your will and teaching it to our wife and to our children. And Lord, as well, we pray that you would teach our women, Lord, that being a submissive wife, Lord, having a gentle and quiet spirit, Lord, this does not mean that they will be trampled upon, but rather it means that they will be exalted and lifted up, both in this life by their husband and their children, but ultimately in the life to come, when you commend them, Lord, for their holiness. So Lord, teach us these things, and Lord, we pray that our homes and our church would be established on your word, and that there would be proper order there, that there would be peace and harmony, and Lord, that it would be a place where the gospel thrives and where the children are raised in the fear of the Lord. So Lord, help us in these things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.